Matthew 24, 32. The words of Jesus. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, the last generation. And you may be seated. You've heard it said many times, even already today, that we are a multi-generational church. Actually, I celebrate the fact that we are a multicultural, just like heaven, multicultural, multi-generational church. But we are reaching for the next generation. And today I'd like to explain why that is our mission. Why we're focused on the children who are in chips right now, children in the power zone, our young students in crossover and the crowd, and even those making the transition to adulthood who are part of hyphen ministry. We are a multi-generational church reaching for the next generation. The study of generations is fascinating. There are family generations and there are social generations. Family generations refer to your family tree, your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so forth going backwards in time. When the Bible summarizes the genealogies of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew chapter 1 verse 17, the Bible says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, father to son to son to son. From David into the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. The word generations in the Bible has more than one usage. It can be the time from the death of a father until the death of his son. We would call that a generation. There are examples in the Bible of a generation lasting a hundred years, like the Lord telling Abraham that in four generations they would come out of Egypt or four hundred years. A generation could also refer to 40 years, and there are various examples that kind of lead us to conclude that you can't nail it down to a specific number of years. It does refer, refer to a, a period of time in which men and women lived. Social generations refer to cohorts of people who are born in the same date range and share similar cultural experiences. You can never stereotype every person in every generation but certainly there are 
discernible, observable trends in various generations that sometimes earn them labels. Now, the United States government is not designated a generation naming agency, but someone comes up with these names and they seem to stick. There's the GI generation. Tom Brokaw wrote a book about it and called them the greatest generation. Born, and these are rough numbers, and it varies depending on the source you read. From 1901 to 1924, the youngest of this generation would be about 94 years of age right now. It refers to those who grew up in the United States during the deprivation of the Great Depression. Many of them went on to fight in World War II or stayed at home, and their productivity in factories and on the home front helped contribute to the winning of World War II. <clears throat> Following them is the silent generation. Some call them the lucky few, born from approximately 1925 to 1942. It includes some who fought in World War II, but others who fought in the Korean conflict and in the early days of the Vietnamese War. They're the baby boomers, my generation. Some people divide them into two categories, the older boomers and the younger boomers, but the generation born following World War II, this cohort of people ranging from being born in the mid-1940s up through maybe 1964, and uh, those are the people who will not give up being young and won't admit to being elders and go on Rolling Stone tours when they have to have a walker to go there. Or something like that. And then Generation X. Usually born, they say, between the early 1980s and the mid-1990s, maybe as late as the 2000s. And then Generation Y, or the Millennials, born between 1982 and 2004. Young adults, now they would be between the ages of 22 and 37, the millennials, you know about the millennials. They've had a distinctive path to adulthood. Many of them staying home in their parents' home, not in a hurry to get married, not really affiliated with organized politics or religion, uh, burdened by debt, many of them, and all of these sometimes distrustful in society and cultural institutions, that millennial generation. According to Pew Research, in 2019, the millennials will surpass baby boomers in the number of people in the United States. By about a, a million people, there will be 73 million millennials. And there's a lot of information out there in the workplace about trying to still figure them out. And then there's Generation Z, born after 9-11-2001. The new silent generation, some say, Thinkers, social interests, sharing of information, digital natives, they've not known a world without war. And then the latest generation, and there's very little that I have found written about them because it stands to really history has not been written because these are the kids born after 2010. They are the children of the millennials. And, you know, really we are creating the world in which they live 
And it's a scary thought to think about the A generation, as some call it, or the Alpha generation. When you study generations X, Y, Z, I mean, you either have to go A, A, B, B, or whatever, or start over. But I was struck by the idea that we're not really sure what to do about starting over, and will there be a next generation? When you study the book of Ecclesiastes, you find that it is a book written by Solomon, the wisest human that ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. But he wrote it at a time in his life when he was not seeing life from God's point of view. He was seeing life from a humanistic perspective, as if there was no eternity that life went on and on. He struggled with vanity and vexation of spirit, he would say, as it is recorded in the King James. He saw the futility of life, where it seemed that no matter what you did, it didn't really matter. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Solomon said, one generation passes away and another generation comes. But Solomon said, but the earth abides forever. Really? He acknowledges that we all die but he sees death is futile. He even says, you know, it's kind of disheartening to think that you would spend your life accumulating stuff and things and then die and leave it to someone else who didn't have to work for it. He says it's even worse to think that you don't know who's going to get all your stuff, whether they're going to be wise or foolish, but you will die leaving it all behind. He said the sun rises and sets only to rise again. The winds swirl in their circuits only to blow from the north, east, south, or west again. He said the rivers run into the sea and yet the sea is not full. He described the water cycle that endlessly went on. He is seeing life going on and on and on with there never being an ending, one generation passes away and another comes, but the earth, he thought, abides forever. If you see life like Solomon saw life, then it certainly shapes your worldview and your perspective on life. Solomon said, there's no real good to doing good because it doesn't really matter. He said... In chapter 6, verse 6, even if you live a thousand years twice, what does it mean to have lived on this earth? He said, I have seen the death of good young people, and I have seen bad people live to an old age. It doesn't seem like there's any justice in life. So he says in Ecclesiastes 8.15, so I recommend having fun. The New Living Translation says it like this. Because there's nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness. 
along with all the work, the hard work God gives them under the sun. In Ecclesiastes 11.9, he says, young people, it's wonderful being so young. But then he kind of lands on his feet. Enjoy every minute. Do everything you want. Take it all in. But remember this, that you must give an account to God for everything you do. In Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, he sums up his writing. You can see him bringing around this earthly perspective, this natural, ungodly perspective, back to the perspective that represents the truth of the Bible. He says that's the whole story. Now here's my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Now, what about this idea that Solomon introduced us to in chapter 1, verse 4? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Is that true or is it false? Let's see what Jesus had to say about this idea. Matthew chapter 25 and 24 and parallel passages in Luke and Mark tell us that Jesus describes events leading up to the end of the world. In the beginning of Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. In verse 3, he sat upon the mountain of olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, these two questions encompass what Jesus has just told them about the destruction of the temple in chapter 23 and what he will tell them in chapters 24 and 25 about the events of what we would know as the end time. In verse four, Jesus said, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. It is coming, but it is not yet. Verse 7. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. Now we're sitting here reading this saying, war is nothing new. Famine is not new. Earthquakes are not new. Why would this be significant? that Jesus would tell us about this, pointing us to the end of all things. We know that there were earthquakes in biblical times. Amos told us that. We know that there have been wars in biblical times. But as you see Jesus describing this, you can see a pattern of the increase of these things in our world. Wars and more wars. Earthquakes and more earthquakes. There is a coming, an increase of these things 
as we near the coming of the Lord. Paul wrote about the groaning of all creation, the earth, I believe, feeling the travail of pain as we come toward the end of all things. In verse 8, Jesus said that these are the only the beginning of sorrows. They're going to deliver you up to be afflicted. You're going to be killed. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will be offended. They will betray one another. They will hate one another. False prophets are going to arise and deceive many. And Jesus said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Jesus said in these last days that there will be so much sin that people who once loved the Lord would see their love dying out like a candle that is going out for the lack of fuel. That's what will happen in these last times. Verse 13, but he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. Jesus said that there would be an end. He goes on to describe what life would be in these last days. The abomination of desolation, tribulation, false Christs, persecution. If your interest is in prophecy, I recommend that you read the recent book released by Dr. David Norris, an apostolic theologian on life, death, and the end of the world. It would sure help you with your understanding of the end time. But I want you to go to verse 32. The words of Jesus that I read to you in the beginning of my message. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a parable. I'm going to give you an example to help you understand what things are going to be like at the end. It's like a fig tree. Its branch is tender. It's in the early spring. It is putting forth leaves. And when you see that, spring is telling you that summer is coming. Right? It's an early warning system, but it doesn't really tell you when it will come for sure. You just know it's on the way. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. It is knocking on the door. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now Jesus had spoken to them about the destruction of the temple that would occur in their generation. That that current generation in Matthew 23, he tells them that. That you will not outlive this, it will happen. And we know it took place in 70 AD. Historically, we know that. But then Jesus said that when you get toward the end of time, that it will be like the budding of the fig tree. That the beginning of these signs will portend the end of all things. It will be clues that I am wrapping up my plan in world history. The beginning of these signs, when they come to pass, that you should know that it is near even at the doors. I repeat verse 34. I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. 
I want to bring you to the main point of my message today. For if Solomon had it right in chapter 1 that the earth went on and on forever as a church, we would have a different mission. We would want you to only be successful. We want you to be successful. We would only want you to get a good education. We want you to get a good education. We would only want you to have a good family life. We want you to have a good family life. But because Jesus brought it all back into focus, our mission is different. We are a multi-generational church. And we are reaching for the next generation for one reason. We are reaching for the next generation knowing that there is a last generation. I want this to sink into your spirit because if life goes on and on and on, then you should do what Solomon said early in Ecclesiastes. Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy life, accumulate, do whatever you can for now. But I'm here today to remind you that the earth does not go on and on and on. That there will be a reckoning day, a judgment day, a day when God's plan for this earth is wrapped up and it all ends. There will be a last there will be a last generation. And because that is true, our mission is not just vital, it is urgent. Because the Bible teaches the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he could come at any time not one prophetic utterance must be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. The apostles who wrote our New Testament believed this. We still believe this. Yesterday at a funeral, we sang soon and very soon. The Bible would end with these words, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly because we believe that before I finish preaching, that trumpet could sound, Jesus could come back. In the same chapter, Matthew 24, Jesus gave us an example of what it would be like toward the end of time. He said in verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now there are many parallels with Noah's generation and our generation. Genesis 6 and 3 says, The Lord tells him, My spirit will not always strive with man. Generations, uh, Genesis 6 and 5, The wickedness of man was great in the earth. The imagination of the thoughts of every heart was only evil continually. People were evil and thought of evil. The Lord said in Genesis 6 and 11, the earth was also corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. And God looked down and he saw the corruption of all flesh on the earth. And he said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me for this reason, for the earth 
is filled with violence and I will destroy them with the earth. But we know that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and the Lord instructed him to be a preacher of righteousness 120 years while he built the monstrosity called the ark that would handle as much of a load as 450 modern boxcars that would house Noah and his sons, eight souls that were saved above the raging floodwaters that destroyed every other living thing on earth. Noah's world, our world. Jesus said that as it was then, so would it be in the end. Now Jesus tells us and the other epistles, Revelation tells us of a lot of the wickedness and evil that would take place in our world. Not going to take the time today to rehearse the writings of Paul or Peter about what it would be like in the last days. But Jesus gave us something that is important that I want to drive home in your mind and heart today. Matthew 24 to 38. For as it was in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now some people try to interpret eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage as some evil thing. But that is not the point at all. Jesus said, that even though there was all this evil, people still went to the grocery store and ate. People still got married and they gave their kids away in marriage. And the proof of what Jesus meant is in this very verse, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not, they knew not, until the flood came, and took them all away. And so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I think we get numb to the wickedness of our world. Maybe even calloused by the corruption that we see all around us. We have the parallel of Noah's day. We have the parallel of our day. And we think maybe there will be an alarm that will sound. A three-day warning. But Jesus said in Noah's day with the preaching of Noah and the wickedness of man that no one knew until the Lord told Noah, go on the ark. And the Bible said that the Lord shut the door. And when God shut the door, no one else could come in. The Bible tells us about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, that the revival day, the age of the church that we're enjoying right now, one day that day will end and the last Gentile Christian will come into the church and the door will be shut. And our world will not know until it is too late. He will come as a thief in the night you say, why? Why? Why would God do this? Why would he keep this to himself? 
Jesus even said, no one knows this, not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son in His humanity knows this, but my Father which is in heaven. It is the best kept secret of all times. Why would God keep it a secret? Why would He suddenly shut the door on Noah's ark? Why would He suddenly come back for His church? Well, let me ask you this. You think God is interested in just selling spiritual fire insurance? You think God is interested in filling heaven with people who don't love him but just don't want to go to hell? You think God is interested in having the inhabitants of heaven, people whose character is like the people in hell? There's not going to be a day when he comes and taps you on the shoulder and says three seconds, three minutes, three days. He may do that out of his mercy, but by his word, he is not obligated to let you know one minute or one day before he comes back. His word would say that in Noah's day, regardless of the evil, they did not know it until the flood came and took them all away. So I'm telling you now that we're not going to wait till tomorrow or a week from now to have a sense of urgency about our mission. We are, we are reaching. We are reaching for the next generation. We're reaching for this generation. Hallelujah. My generation is reaching for the next generation because there is no promise that there will be another one and another one and another one. There will be a last generation. So we need to repent. We need to get right. We need to reach people. You see, we need to live ready, not just live scared. We need to fall in love with Jesus Christ and accept his lordship. It's what is right and what is best for us. We need to quit cutting corners and compromising convictions and becoming more like the world than we are the church. For be holy as he is holy. He called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Not out of darkness, into different darkness. He called us to be a contrast culture in this world. We are pilgrims and strangers on the earth. Our citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. Hallelujah. You see, you're not going to have the character of the citizens of hell and be a citizen of heaven. You've got to let the blood of Jesus Christ cover your sins. That's why we clearly preach, repent, turn from your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Let your old past be buried and rise to walk in the newness of life as Jesus fills you with his spirit. Jesus is coming back for people who have made themselves ready. To them that look for him, 
shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. In an hour that you think not like the days of Noah, it will just happen. He may be driving to work, standing in the produce section of your favorite grocery store, playing with your children, talking to a friend, out in the woods or on the golf course, shopping in the mall or online. He may be standing in a worship service, giving it your best or emptying yourself at an altar. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Faster than you can say forgive me. Faster than you can change your mind. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. On Heritage Sunday, I appeal to you to say that every elder in this house shares my burden that we long to see you embrace the God of your fathers or maybe a God your fathers never served. A glorious day for those who are saved and those left behind to be separated from God forever in a burning lake of fire.